recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 30th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight I want to discuss something a little different, but something that's very much the same. We just discussed this for um, 25 weeks in our Pragmatic Genesis and, and Explaining 2C line series. This is Appendix B in the Christogenia New Testament. And it was entitled, The Devil and Satan. The first appendix, Appendix A, was entitled, Greek Names for God and Christ. And I'm thinking about presenting that appendix in parts as a part of the series on the epistles of the Apostle Paul, which is currently running here on Friday nights, as that series culminates to explain my methods behind my handling of the names and my addition of the name Yahweh, which to me is the English expression of the Tetragrammaton, into the Christogenian New Testament. This Appendix B was not written to be a complete 2C line series, or, or thesis, I'm sorry. Rather, it was very condensed and abbreviated, and it only intended to do two things. First, to be a brief introduction to, to what we may call 2C line theology and to entice readers to study the matter further for themselves. Let me say first that Christogenia does not depend on this 2C line label. Christogenia does not intend to be a 2C line ministry. 2C line, to me, represents the expression found in Genesis 3.15. So I don't mind it. I don't mind the label one bit if, when I use it, people understand that I'm referring to the truths represented by Genesis 3.15 as it is unfolded in the Bible and history. But I don't depend upon the label. I don't depend upon any labels. I only depend upon seeking the truth of God. Many of my detractors attempt to somehow smear me by claiming that I am not traditional 2C line, after the manner of a Wesley Swift or a Bertrand Compare. First, even Swift and Compare did not agree on everything related to these biblical issues between themselves. Swift chased after the enigmatic and sought to portray the enigmatic in an aura of the supernatural. While Compare was generally more practical and avoided most such fantastic depictions. At Christogenia, we have recently done a series entitled Pragmatic Genesis, where we did our best to divide the two to demonstrate from Scripture what Christians should believe about Genesis and then to distinguish the areas where they may disagree, while at the same time describing the possibilities which lie behind the things 
for which we cannot be certain. That was the endeavor of pragmatic genesis. The problem with my detractors is that they follow, not the Bible, but the interpretations of Scripture presented by Wesley Swift. While Swift did, and Swift said, many good things, his mystical interpretations of Scripture were to a very great extent based upon the Zohar. The Zohar, a part of the Kabbalah, was often cited by Wesley Swift, who held it in high esteem. This is not Christian exegesis. Rather, the Zohar is medieval Jewish mysticism, and Wesley Swift was enamored by it. But we are not. When I say we are not, I believe I could speak in part for Clifton Emmerheiser, whose ministry certainly is a key partner in my own. The Zohar is medieval Jewish mysticism. It is seeped into Christianity since the days of Christ, and even before that. And it must be rejected. Therefore, my detractors believe things that are not found in Scripture, things that are extrapolated from Scripture. There's a lot that may be extrapolated from Scripture. That does not make it scriptural. That does not mean, because we can extrapolate things from Scripture, that we should build doctrines upon them and beat each other over the head with those doctrines. My detractors believe things that are not found in Scripture, and they criticize me for not believing those things. Well, they're found to be short. In truth, my own Genesis interpretation is based solely upon Scripture, but it is augmented with a decent understanding of ancient history, archaeology, as well as apocryphal writings that the apostles themselves also accepted. And sometimes with Christian writings or other Hebrew writings known to date from the first century or earlier, and yes, Christian writings can predate Christ. The proof? The entire Old Testament is a Christian writing, excluding the Esther story, which I do not believe belongs there. But the single biggest difference is this. My detractors insist, for the most part, that Satan is still in heaven. That Satan came down from heaven, this mystical being, in order to seduce our first parents. That's not in Scripture. And I prefer to believe the Bible, which refutes those childish ideas. The purpose of this program is to prove that my detractors themselves are slanderers and to present the basic concepts of two seed line in a single podcast. As I said about this appendix to the Christogenian New Testament, it's not meant to be a complete exposition of 2C line theology. That would require an entire volume, at least. Rather, it's meant to be a brief introduction. 
and to entice readers to study the matter further for themselves. There are, in the Bible, and it is evident throughout history, two races in this direct opposition to each other from the beginning, from the dawn of time, as we like to say. These are the race of the woman and the race of the serpent. And they have enmity between one another, as foretold in Genesis 3.15. The race of the woman is represented in the New Testament times and the descendants of Jacob Israel. It was this branch of the much larger Adamic, meaning Caucasian or white race, which was chosen by Yahweh for preservation, to continue his work upon the earth. At the time of Christ, there did remain Gonian Greeks, as distinguished from Danon or Dorian Greeks, the Elamite Persians, those two are notable examples. But since then, since the time of Christ, all of the other branches of the Adamic race have faded into oblivion, having lost their original tribal identities. The people of most of the lands which they dwelt in today are no longer true Adamic people. The Hamites of Africa and the Middle East and Mesopotamia, the Shemites of Mesopotamia and Anatolia, where they dwell, the Japetites of East Asia, West and Central Asia and Eastern Europe and many parts of Southern Europe, they're gone now. Those people are gone and those lands to some degree are inhabited by people of other races and mixed races. The people of Northern Europe are descended from the so-called lost tribes of Israel, for the most part, from which came the Germans and Celts and Scandinavians, along with earlier immigrants to these coasts, such as the Phoenicians, the Danan and Dorian Greeks, the Dardanian Trojans, the Romans, the Illyrians, and other smaller divisions. Yet, it is scripturally and historically evident that a remnant of the other Adamic nations dwell among them or were absorbed into them. The Northern European nations, along with some of the nations of Southern Europe and Asia, as they once were, and, and remnants of our people in pockets in those places, are the remaining seed of the woman. These are the nations that their kings promised to the patriarchs. Genesis thirty five eleven, Luke one verse seventy seven, Luke two thirty two, many other New Testament scriptures demonstrate the fulfillment of Genesis 35:11, The remnant of these peoples are the anointed collectively. Christendom is what they became later in history in fulfillment of prophecies concerning the children of Israel. 
These tables are the anointed collectively. There are papers at Christogenia which demonstrate that use of the term anointed in reference to the people of Israel. Genesis 35.11 is representative of the promises Yahweh made to the patriarchs. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, speaking of Jacob in this case, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Now there are some people from the, um, from the screwy-dewy camp especially. There are some critics of Christian identity who think they have truth from God. These clowns are poking fun of Christian identity because we believe in seed line. We believe in seed, that the promises would come to the descendants of the patriarchs and be passed down from generation to generation through seed. They make fun of that. They say, well, God doesn't need seed to fulfill his promises. He just sends the spirit into whoever he wants. All of the promises of Scripture are predicated on seed. Period. If you find that to be um, too corporal for you, then you must interpret the Bible with many inconsistencies. You must discard all of the promises made to seed. And then there is great disparity between God's creation and God's word. God created the ability of man to procreate, as well as the ability of beasts. That is how his creation is propagated. He chose that way. It doesn't matter that men find that too fleshly. That's the method God chose. And his creation is kind after kind, so he put the bounds of morality upon our sex lives, our coupling, and our reproduction. Men should seek to follow that because the promises, all the promises of God are indeed through seed. If you have a problem with that, then you have a reprobate mind. Luke 177 was cited here because it is demonstrative of many New Testament statements attesting to the limited scope of salvation, where, in the profession of the purpose of Christ, it says, for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their sins. That seed that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises don't endure upon the earth through any other manner than through the seed. Luke 2.32 is cited here because it explicitly connects those ideas, the ideas between 
salvation, the Christ, and the promises to the patriarchs and their seed. And presents them as the purpose of the gospel. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. Because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. Now, of course, the popular translations do not render that last verse very accurately. However, the light is for the revelation of the nations and honor of Yahweh's people Israel. Those nations which were promised in the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul explains that very well in Romans chapter 4. That the gospel is going out to those nations which fulfilled that promise to Abraham. His seed which became those nations. The seed of the serpent had primarily descended unto this day from Cain through Canaan noting Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 and 21, where we see that Kenites, Rephaim, and others not descended from Adam had survived the flood and were living with and cohabiting with the Canaanites. And then through Esau, where we see in Genesis chapter 36, that Esau married Canaanite women. And through the descendants of Judah's Canaanite son Shelah, where we see in Genesis chapter 38, that Judah married a Canaanite woman, and the Shelahites were always with Judah. That this seed survived into the New Testament times in this manner is evident in John chapter 8, in Matthew chapter 13. In Luke chapter 10, chapter 11, Romans chapter 9, many other places in Scripture, these passages all demonstrate that the adversaries of Christ did indeed descend from the seed of the serpent. John chapter 8, from verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now there were offspring of Abraham in Palestine, which was not offspring of Israel in the descendants of Esau. Now this John 8.37 passage does demonstrate that his adversaries descended at least in part from Abraham. John 8.38, the things which I have seen from the Father I speak, so also you, the things which you have heard from your Father, you do. Even though they were descendants from Abraham, this passage demonstrates that their origin was different from that of Christ. They replied and said to him, our Father is Abraham. Joshua says to them, if you were the children of Abraham, you would have done the works of Abraham. Ostensibly, they were not true children of Abraham, 
but bastards. It's the only way they could be descendants of Abraham and yet still have an origin different from Christ, who was indeed a son of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man whom has spoken to you the truth, which I have heard from Yahweh. This Abraham has not done. You do the works of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, Yahweh. The prophet Malachi prophesied this very thing and the reasons for it in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where he basically prophesied this exact answer. Have we not one father? And he goes on to explain that Judah married the daughter of a strange God. This very conversation which Christ has here, Malachi prophesied. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh who he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. John eight forty two. Yahshua said to them, If Yahweh was your father, you would have loved me, for I have come from of Yahweh and am here. I have not come by myself, but he has sent me. For what reason do you not perceive my speech? Because you were not able to hear my word. You are the sons of the father, the false accuser, or devil, the devil, the fallen entity of Revelation chapter 12, that old serpent. And you wish to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now that's a statement which can only apply to Cain. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. And did not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from of his own devices, because he is a liar and the father of it. Now because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Who from among you censures me concerning sin? If I speak truth, for what reason do you not believe me? He who is from of Yahweh, hears the words of Yahweh. For this reason you do not hear because you are not from of Yahweh. No bastard can be from Yahweh. John chapter 8 proves beyond doubt that these people who were opposed to Christ, even though they could claim to be descendants of Abraham, were nevertheless from an origin other than Christ. And they were indeed born of fornication. They were indeed, at least in part, from Judah's strange God wife, the Canaanite woman. They were indeed, at least in part, from Cain. That's the only way they could be the sons of the murderer from the beginning. So the two seed line exposition 
that the seed of Cain survived and the flood and mingled with the Canaanites whom Judah married and whom Esau also married and survived all the way down into first century Jerusalem is proven in John chapter 8. It's also proven in Luke chapter 11, which we will get to momentarily. But Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, agrees with this interpretation of John, where it says, in the words of Christ, he sowing the good seed is the son of man. Now the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil, or the false accuser. And we will get to the meaning of that word later. And the harvest is the consummation of the age, and the reapers are the messengers. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. Understanding that Christ is Yahweh, as nearly all real, legitimate teachers of two-seed-line Christian identity understood. And as the scripture says, that all things were made through Christ, we must understand that he referred to the Genesis account as the sowing of the wheat and the tares. That's a reference to the book of Genesis. The words of Christ in Luke chapter 11 also support these assertions, where he says from verse 39, I'm sorry, 49, for this reason also the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, and some of them they shall kill and they shall persecute in order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the society should be required from this race. From the blood of Abel, under the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. Referring to the people of Jerusalem, it can be demonstrated in the Old and New Testaments that there were many Canaanites among them. Because as Malachi said, in relation to these very things, Judah married the daughter of a strange god. And this can be demonstrated from Ezekiel chapter 16, Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 19, Jeremiah chapter 25. But these people whom Christ speaks to, the only way for them to be held responsible for the blood of Abel is if their race was of the race of Cain. Because only Cain can be held responsible for the blood of Abel. The Edomites, who had long ago moved into post-deportation lands of Judah and Israel, which is prophesied in Ezekiel 35.10, were joined to the Judean kingdom of the Maccabees circa 130 B.C., that is fully manifest in the histories of Josephus in Antiquities, Book 13, Book 13, Chapter 9, Book 13, Chapter 15, 
it's mentioned in Strabo's geography that the Edomites, along with the Judeans, were living in Judea. They were all mingled in together and living under the same government and customs. Strabo's Geography, Book 16. In Ezekiel 35.10, Yahweh addresses Edom where he, where he says, because thou hast said, the and we will possess it. Whereas Yahweh was there. The very detailed histories of Josephus and comments by Strabo in his geography demonstrate the fulfillment of the words of the prophet. Thereafter, and especially from the time of Herod, the Edomites, the Shelahite Judahites, and other Canaanites had infiltrated and then usurped the institutions of the kingdom of Judea by the time of Christ. This situation was the reason for the constant division among the Judeans noted in John chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, experienced by Paul in Acts chapters 13, 14, 17, John chapter 7, verse 43. Therefore, there was a division among the crowd because of him, meaning because of Christ. John chapter 9, verse 16. Then some from among the Pharisees said, This man is not from Yahweh, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How is a sinful man able to do things such as these? And there was division among them. John chapter 9. 10, verse 19, there was division again among the Judeans on account of these words. At John chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, Christ himself gave the reasons for the division. Yahshua replied to them, I have spoken to you, and you do not believe the words which I do in the name of my Father. These things testify concerning me but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. They did not believe because they were not his sheep. They were not Israelites. The only explanation is that they were Edomites and Canaanites. That's the only explanation available in history and scripture. There is no other available explanation that we could demonstrate as fact from history and scripture. This division was also evident among Judeans throughout the empire. There was a great distribution of Judeans, meaning those practicing Judaism from the ancient land of Judea, all throughout the Roman Empire in every Roman city. That distribution took place during the Hellenistic period. Paul experienced in Pisidia that division where he preached the gospel in an assembly hall recorded in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And hearing, the people rejoiced and extolled the word of the prince. And as many as were appointed to eternal life had believed. And the word of the prince was carried throughout the whole land. And the Judeans urged on some of the noble, pious women 
and the first men of the city and aroused the persecution against Paul and Barnabas and ejected them from their borders. Paul experienced this again in Iconium in Acts chapter 14, where it says, And it happened in Iconium that upon them entering into the assembly hall of the Judeans and speaking thusly, that a great multitude of both the Judeans and the Greeks were believing, but the disbelieving Judeans were aroused and befouled the souls of the people against the brethren, as it is recorded elsewhere also, later in Acts chapter 14 and in Acts 17 especially, Paul frequently encountered Judeans who were of the sort whom Christ would have considered to be not my sheep because they would not under any circumstances accept his word or investigate the scripture in order to see the truth of the matter. Note that Luke said that the Judeans of Beroia were of a more noble race than those of contention who were in Thessalonica, Acts 17.11. These contentious people were among the Jews from whom today's Jews are in large part descended. And so today's Jews are primarily the children of Canaan and of Esau and are the enemies of Yahweh, Yahshua Christ, and true Israel. They were all among those whom Christ would have said were not his sheep because they rejected the gospel. The grounds for rejecting the gospel are laid out by Christ in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and know me, and they follow me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. That's the grounds that Christ laid for the acceptance or rejection of the gospel. There were also, in New Testament times, and even long before that and after that, and there are even today, and this is what a lot of so-called two seed liners don't understand at the time of Christ. Long before the time of Christ, many centuries before the time of Christ, and even today, there are descendants of the serpent in many other places than Palestine who do not identify themselves as Jews, who never identified themselves as Jews, and who never had any relation to Palestine. The Arabs are among these, but these are not limited to the Arabs. The people that we know as Arabs all descended in part from the same Canaanites, Edomites, Kenites, Rephaim, and other accursed tribes of the Old Testament. And those people have spread long ago they spread themselves into Asia, Africa, Southern Europe, the former Soviet states, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, the Caucasus Mountains, throughout Anatolia, all the way to India, by sea, 
all the way to the Philippines, maybe beyond that. This is where my detractors really go wrong, considering the non-Adamic races. The Kenites, the Canaanites, they're only the beginning of the people known as Arabs. And not all Kenites and Canaanites, ostensibly, could be Arabs. They could have gone even elsewhere. The Bible focuses on Israel in Palestine and, and, and its immediate environs. We have some ancient inscriptions in Mesopotamia, which mentions many of the Canaanite peoples of, of Scripture. But even they are only concerned with what's going on in Mesopotamia. That doesn't mean that the Kenites and Canaanites and all of these other accursed people limited themselves and stayed in Mesopotamia and Palestine, they sure as hell did not. The Kenites and Canaanites are the beginning of the people known as Arabs, and they mixed with Adamic tribes, and they mixed heavily with Negroes and other non-whites. They had been sailing and trading since the, since the earliest historical times. There is anthropological evidence. Clifton Emmerheiser recently published this on his website. There is anthropological evidence dating to the 18th century AD and, and French anthropologists that Arabs were exporting Negro slaves to China as early as the 7th century before Christ, the earliest portions of the Roman, time of the Roman Empire. The black races of India and Australia may very well be where they are today by the same means. Islam, Islam and Arabs who brought it reached as far as the Philippines and Malaysia through the Arabs long before the Spanish and English ever discovered those places for themselves. We cannot imagine that for all those centuries, while the seat of the woman was languishing in Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean basin, that the seed of the serpent was necessarily confined to those same places. It certainly was not. My original Christoginian New Testament appendix did not discuss these things because the scope of that appendix is limited to Scripture. So I'm adding these things to discussion here tonight. When we consider things outside of the Adamic Oikumene, which is the focus of Scripture, we must consider many other sources of information to build an understanding. If we don't really understand history and archaeology, and... History outside of the organic oikumene is extremely sketchy. Then we can't make any fair determinations relating to people who dwelt outside of the oikumene, the oikumene, the Adamic world.
history is sketchy in many respects within the Adamic Oikumene. Never mind outside of it. It can be shown that the phrase Ho Christos, which means the anointed, which often is interpreted as the anointed one in relation to Christ. Ho Christos is an appellation which is applicable to both Yahshua Christ himself and also to the children of Israel collectively. I'm going to um, give two examples of that. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 26. By faith, Moses, becoming full-grown, refused to be called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of sin, having esteemed the reproach of the anointed greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And we have to interpret, if we want to be fair, if we want to be accurate in the historical context of Scripture, we have to interpret the phrase ho Christos in that passage as the anointed and imagine that it refers to the body of Christ, to the people of Christ, rather than to Christ himself. Because Christ himself was not being reproached in the deserts of Egypt, but the people of Christ were. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, and he's discussing the support of widows by the assembly, but younger widows you must excuse, for when they behave wantonly towards the anointed, they desire to marry with judgment, because they have set aside that former assurance. Now, younger widows couldn't marry themselves to an ascended Christ, could they? They couldn't behave wantonly towards an ascended Christ, but they could behave wantonly towards the people, the men in the body of Christ. So we have to interpret that, that phrase, ho Christos, the anointed, to refer to the people of the body of Christ in 1 Timothy chapter 5 in that passage, and not to Christ himself. As Ho Christos refers to very often, there are many other times in scripture when it refers to the people of Christ as well as to Christ himself, we have to imagine the appellations or the substantives, if you want to call them that, terms used as nouns, ho satanus, ho diabolos, the Satan, the devil, ho antichimenos, the opposition, ho antichristos, the antichrist. We have, to, we have to determine that those appellations 
those titles can also refer to a collective group. And it can be demonstrated that those appellations are often applied to the descendants of the serpent, to the race of vipers, to the den of vipers, to the race of serpents, which we see mentioned in Matthew 3, 7, Luke 3, 7, Matthew 12, 34, Matthew 23, 33, many other places. Two collective groups, Hosatanus, the Satan, Hochristos, the anointed, the people of God, the people of Satan. The satanic entity is a collective body, meaning a body of people here on earth. The scripture proves that again and again. Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist. Seeing many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the immersion, he said to them, race of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Matthew twelve thirty four. Offspring of vipers, how are you able to speak good things being evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 3, 7. Race of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? This shows that there were people in Judea who were not expected to repent. The gospel was not for them. John the Baptist expressed surprise that they would come to investigate his baptism because they were not supposed to be warned to flee from the coming wrath. Offspring of vipers, how are you able to speak good things being evil? This shows that offspring of vipers have no capacity for repentance. They cannot speak good things because they are evil. If they could repent, they would have the capacity to speak good things because they're evil even when they speak good things. It's with evil intentions. It's for the wrong reasons. They are evil. They cannot speak good things. Matthew twenty three thirty three, race of vipers, serpents, race of vipers, how could you escape from the judgment of Gehenna? They can't. They can't escape from the judgment of Gehenna. This shows there were people in Judea who were doomed from the start because they were a race of vipers, a race of serpents. In Jude verses 6 through 13, the apostle is talking about the angels which kept not their first estate. And that's an allusion to the fallen angels that we can read about also in the Revelation in chapter 12. But Jude speaks of them as if they were there in Palestine at his time 
because the subject does not change. And he says in verse 10, but these are referenced back to the angels which kept not their first estate. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Korah was an Israelite, but he wanted to set up a priesthood apart from what was designated by Yahweh. The same thing with Cain. Cain was a bastard, and he tried to usurp the priesthood for himself. Yahweh would not accept his sacrifice. Balaam, the error of Balaam, was also bastardization, the promotion of race mixing. Numbers chapter 25. But Jude says of those original angels in verse 6, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he is reserved, meaning God, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. In Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, we see the synagogue of Satan mentioned of those who say they are Judeans but are lying. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, and chapter 20, verse 10, we see that Satan is to be bound for a thousand years. Now, if the original fallen angels are bound in everlasting chains of darkness, awaiting the judgment of the great day, as both Jude and Peter attest, then Revelation chapter 20 cannot be describing the original fallen angels. No, it can't. It can, however, be describing their descendants, the seed of the serpent, the collective Satan, and not merely some singular fallen angel. Those people who were in Jude's time, speaking evil of those things which they know not, and corrupting themselves as brute beasts. To Peter, the apostle also says that those people are around at his time and that they were spots in Christian feasts of charity, feeding themselves without fear, having eyes full of adultery, and he also equated them to those same fallen angels in a roundabout way and called them natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. We have fallen angels bound in chains of darkness forever 
everlasting chains of darkness. Then we have the collective Satan interacting with Israelites in first century Judea. The collective Satan are the seed of the serpent. They are Satan. They are Satan in the world today. They were Satan in the world at the time of Christ. We cannot limit the idea of Satan, however, to first century Palestine because people move. The Bible is not concerned with events outside of the habitation of the children of God. But that doesn't mean that the devil is not concerned with events and with places and people outside of the habitation of the children of God. The devil, the collective Satan, certainly is and always has been. The Hebrew word satanus simply means adversary, the adversary. It appears in the New Testament on 34 occasions. Now, at times, the word usage, and I'll say apparently, is apparently of a spiritual or supernatural being or an angelic being. But at times, it's clearly used to people here in the physical world. There are people who think Satan is in heaven because they've had experiences with demons. And demons are mentioned in the New Testament. We can't dispute the existence of demons, evil spirits, however you want to imagine them to be. But a demon, which is a disembodied evil spirit, may be perceived as a supernatural being, but that does not mean that the demon is Satan in heaven, because Satan is not in heaven. There are many synonyms used in the New Testament for this Hebrew word, Satanas. There's the Greek word, Antichimonus, used as a substantive, ho Antichimonus, the opposition. Or those opposing, we see that in Luke, Luke thirteen seventeen, Luke twenty one fifteen. We see it often in Paul. Ho antichimonus, the opposition. We see that in one Timothy five fourteen, where he says, Therefore I prefer younger women to marry, to bear children, to rule the household to give not any occasion to the opposition for cause of abuse. Don't put your young women in a position where they be abused by the devil, by Satan, by the damned Jews and all of the other members of their race who are walking around in fleshly bodies. They are the Satan that Paul is talking about. Philippians 
and in nothing being frightened by the opposition, which to them is an indication of destruction, but of your preservation. And this is from Yahweh. The collective, the opposition is a collective, and collectively they are Satan. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship, and so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. And Paul's not talking about a spirit Satan, an individual Satan, as a, as a supernatural spirit sitting in the temple of God. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. In Romans chapter 9, Paul mentioned vessels of destruction and compared Jacob and Esau. And it formed us in a prophetic way, that there were Israelites in Judea, and there were Edomites in Judea. And the Edomites were the descendants of Esau in Romans chapter 9. And that they were vessels of destruction. Here, Paul refers to them, because it's the Edomites sitting in the temple pretending to be as God. They were playing high priest. They, collectively, are the man of lawlessness. They were revealed by Christ. John chapter 8, Luke chapter 11, all the passages we just cited, they, collectively, are the son of destruction. And they controlled the high priest, the high priesthood, and the temple from the time of Herod and had an awful lot of influence throughout the Roman Empire. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For our doing wrong voluntarily after receiving the knowledge of the truth, no longer for wrongdoing does the sacrifice remain, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fervent fire destined to devour the opposition. Now here, another synonym is used. It's not antikymenos, it's hoop and antios, someone who's opposed to you. But this, too, is a reference to those who rejected Christ, the collective Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 through 9, we find that the great red dragon, the old serpent, the devil, or the false accuser, ho diabolos, and Satan, Hosatanas, or the adversary. They are all the same entity. And they are that collection of angels which rebelled against Yahweh and were cast out here on the earth. 
And they are found here in our Bible from the earliest times. And so we had that old serpent was already here at the creation of Adam. And that old serpent seduced Eve and fathered Cain. If the old serpent of Genesis is the same entity as the serpent and Satan of the Revelation, as the Revelation tells us that it is, and if we are told of these fallen angels that neither was their place found any longer in heaven, that Satan is not in heaven and has not been in heaven since before the time of Genesis chapter 3. And anyone who insists that this Satan is in heaven is in direct contradiction to the words of Christ in Revelation chapter 12. And also in Luke chapter 10 where he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven and give you let me pull it out so that I could quote it directly. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Christ wasn't talking about literal serpents and scorpions. He was talking about that satanic entity, that collection of people permanently opposed to God, that race of serpents. All the power of the enemy. There are people that can protest that Adam fathered Cain, that protest and say that Adam fathered Cain. There's only one witness to that in all of Scripture, and that's a Genesis 4.1. That's a demonstrably corrupt verse. Therefore, it cannot be held up as an authority because there's no second witness anywhere. This is, the Interpreter's Bible, volume 1, page 517, says in part of Genesis 4.1, I've gotten a man from the Lord, and the actual Hebrew is rather unintelligible, and the words are a gloss. Before the Christian era, the Israelites of Judea either knew that Genesis 4.1 was corrupt and attempted to repair it, or were actually in possession of a version of Genesis 4.1, which was lost before either the Septuagint or the Masoretic text came along. Because in the earliest translations of Genesis 4.1 from the Hebrew, which are the Aramaic Targums, we find translations or interpretations of the verse as follows. And Adam knew his wife, who was pregnant by the angel Samael, and she conceived and bare Cain, and he was like the heavenly beings and not like the earthly beings. And she said, I've acquired a man, an angel of the Lord. That's the Targum of Jonathan. But there's another Targum, which says, And Adam knew his wife, Eve, who had desired the angel, and she conceived and bare Cain, and she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. And that Targum, I think that's the Palestinian Targum. It might be the Targum Ankylos, I'm sorry, I don't remember. But 
that targum is a little um, more conservative in its in its in, in its own assertions. I do not see the targums as canon. The targums are certainly not canon. What they are, or what these passages represent, are attempts by early scribes, whether they are Israelites or not, to rectify the problems of Genesis 4.1 with Hebrew folklore understanding. And it was certainly Hebrew folklore understanding reflected in many apocryphal writings that Adam was not the father of Cain. And of course, Adam, Cain is mentioned nowhere in Scripture as being the son of Adam outside of Genesis 4.1 and the Hebrew to that passage is corrupted. There's no doubt it's corrupted. To the honest, to the honest scholar, the idea that Cain was fathered by a serpent, the serpent of Genesis chapter three, is supported not only by the New Testament, Matthew chapter thirteen, John chapter eight. You know, if Christ called um, Cain a devil, if he said you're of your father the devil, the murderer from the beginning must relate to Cain, but then. Christ isn't simply making an ad hominem accusation. If Cain is a devil, he must be the son of the serpent because the law of God is kind after kind. Christ must have a reason to call Cain a devil. Just as he called Judas Iscariot a devil. There's much apocryphal literature which supports this idea. I'm going to quote some of it probably a few times in what we have remaining to this presentation. The Wisdom of Solomon, 224, the Book of Enoch, the Ethiopic Book of Enoch, chapter 68, in Lawrence's translation, 4 Maccabees, chapter 18. Let's cite 4 Maccabees, chapter 18. 4 Maccabees is not a Jewish work. It is not a Talmudic work. It's uh, very demonstrable. This Four Maccabees is a well-known early Christian work. I'm going to read from chapter 18 for verse 7, where it says, And the righteous mother of the seven children spoke also as follows to her offspring. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house. But I took care of the built-up rib. Now, now that is an allusion to Eve and the creation of Eve. No destroyer of the desert or ravisher of the plain injured me. Nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. The Hebrew language has something called parallelism. It's a feature of the language which we see often in Scripture, even if we don't always recognize it. 
parallelism is a is a um, it's a style of language where the same entity is described two or even more than two times using different words. We see it all in the letters of Paul regarding God and Christ. And it's usually not even recognized. Yahweh the Father, even Yahshua Christ. That's really a parallel. Here we have parallelism. The destroyer of the desert, the ravisher of the plain, the destructive, deceitful snake, they all refer to the same entity. And they don't refer to Satans in heaven. They don't refer to demons in the clouds. They refer to people. Ravisher of the plain, destroyer of the desert. These refer to what we may envision to be wandering bandits, robbers, rapists, dirty Arab bastards wandering the desert looking for victims. And this is what the woman envisioned as a destructive, deceitful snake. She wasn't talking about a, a, a literal serpent that would make spoil of her chaste virginity. She's talking about people, just as Christ in Luke chapter 10 was talking about people when he said, after mentioning Satan falling from heaven, when he said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. For Maccabees was written in the same century that Christ spoke those words. It's the same analogy which is being used of a race of people. From the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, death came into the world. There's another uh, fantastic passage in the Ethiopic one Enoch, in the list of wicked angels, chapter 68, verses 6 and 7 in Lawrence's translation and verse division, which is different from that of Charles. And it says, the name of the third is Gadrel. He discovered every stroke of death to the children of men. He seduced thee and discovered to the children of men the instruments of death. Now, I do not necessarily trust the Ethiopic Enoch. I don't really at all. I prefer the Dead Sea Scrolls, the fragments of Enoch we have in that, as being much more original and wanting some of the fantastic material. But the Ethiopic Enoch is still another testimony to the general outline of the story as it was understood early in the Christian period and perhaps before that. The descendants of Cain, the Kenites, and, and we could see both Strong in his concordance and the expositors of the Interpreter's Bible, volume 1, page 
5.17 attest that the Kenites are the descendants of Cain. The Kenites of Genesis chapter 15 are the descendants of Cain, which are first listed in Genesis chapter 4. The descendants of Cain can be traced through the Old Testament to the Jews of today. And Christ shows that to us in John chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 11, because only the Cain was a murderer from the beginning. If he has descendants here, if anyone here has, has that devil for a father, it must be a reference to Cain. And only the descendants of Cain can be held accountable for the blood of Abel. So that's several witnesses. We also see in Revelation chapter 12 that this Satan entity who seeks to destroy the child, Yahshua Christ, the child of the woman, which represents Israel, the woman of Revelation 12 standing on the moon with the 12 stars, that's Israel, gives birth to a man-child, that's Christ. We see this satanic entity seeks to destroy the Christ child even as soon as it was born. And in the historical part of Scripture, only Herod, Herod the Great, the Jews love to call him, only Herod attempted to slay the Christ child as soon as he was born. And it can be established that Herod was an Edomite and usurped the throne of Judea. And Josephus, in his antiquity, says four times explicitly, twice in antiquities, three times in antiquities, and once in his book of the wars of the Judeans, that Herod was an Edomite. And therefore, many of the conclusions reached here concerning the Edomite, Canaanite Jews are greatly substantiated by this predicament alone, although they can also be substantiated elsewhere. This conspiracy by Satan, which, which is shown to begin in Revelation chapter 12, in, in that prophecy anyway, that prophecy, even though it happened after the fact, is intended to elucidate these very things for us. This conspiracy by Satan, which by saying Satan I mean the Jews in this context, continues throughout the time of Christ's ministry until it was accomplished at the crucifixion and further continued against the disciples of Christ which is evident throughout the book of Acts. In Acts, 4, Acts chapter 4, in verses 6 and 23, we see terms, if you read the Christogonian New Testament, such as race of the high priest and their own countrymen, by which we see the apostles distinguished the Edomites in Jerusalem from their own kin.
There's a lot of language in the New Testament that's simply not translated in a manner which is explicit enough in the popular translations for us to grasp these things. They just didn't get it. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the eventual acceptance of Christianity by the nations of Europe, the true dispersed of Israel. Then Satan was locked away in a pit for a thousand years, as it says in Revelation chapter 20. That's when the Jews were eventually separated from the civic life of Europe and banished to the ghettos or to the regions outside, Arabia, Khazaria, Algeria. A thousand years later, they were released to deceive the nations. Believing Satan is in heaven is very dangerous because you're ignoring or diminishing the real Satan, which is a collective people here on earth. After the Enlightenment, world Jewry gained considerable influence over the economic and intellectual lives of the seed of the woman, especially through the central banking system. And that is how Satan today has all the nations deceived, as we see in Revelation chapter 20. Connecting them to the serpent of Genesis, we see that John the Baptist called the Edomite Jew Pharisees a race of vipers. Yahshua Christ told his descendants that he beheld Satan falling from heaven and connected them to serpents and all the power of the enemy. And in Christ, his apostles had authority over those serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. It's not a mistake that one chapter later, in chapter 11, Christ exposes these same people, these Edomite Jews, as a race connected to Cain, and that they would be held accountable for the blood of all the prophets. And when we examine the Old Testament, we see the mystery of iniquity in Jerusalem was the Edomite and Canaanite element in it. Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16. My mother was a Hittite. Let let me um, get this verse out. Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And when we examine Jeremiah chapter 2, or the parable of the good and the bad figs, we see that the people of Judah had been race-mixing with the Hittites and the Canaanites. So Ezekiel and the prophecy of Yahweh and Ezekiel are accurate. And those who killed the prophets 
where it is recorded in the Old Testament. Doug the Edomite, who killed the priest of Yahweh for Saul, when Saul's, none of Saul's other serpents would do so. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Jezebel. If Jezebel was not a Canaanite, she, her father was a priest of Baal. And she certainly had Canaanite in, pagan religious influences. And she slew many of the prophets of Yahweh in 1 Kings chapter 18. The Satan who fell from heaven is mentioned elsewhere in Luke's Gospel. Mentioned in Luke's Gospel probably more than any other. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 71, we were told that we would be delivered from our enemies, that that was the purpose of the coming of Christ, or a part of it. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Luke chapter 19. From verse 14, a certain man went off to um, acquire a kingdom, to take a kingdom to himself. He evidently had it coming. And his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And that That parable is all about Christ and Judea. And he said about them, but those mine enemies who would not that I should reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. And these can only be the bad figs of Jeremiah chapter 24, who were to be dispersed into every nation and be a curse and a reproach. And we see the same language in reference to them when Christ prophecies of the destruction of Judea later on in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 20. The Edomite Canaanite Jews or the fig tree of Matthew chapter 21, which bore no fruit and would bear no fruit. That's why there can never be any good Jews. Any Judeans, any Israelite Judeans, who had not converted to Christ by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, as Christ says, not only in Jeremiah in the parable of the good and the bad figs, but also in Luke, that wrath and vengeance would be upon those people. And those who rejected him would be handed over to the bad figs, so that ultimately they would be a curse and a taunt and a reproach in all the nations where they would be sent. 70 AD is the dispersion of the bad things of Judah. But Satan is not limited to them alone. Because there were Kenites and Canaanites, Canaanites historically in many other places besides Judah. 
God chose history to revolve around Jacob and Esau, and Esau represents those mixed-race Judeans who rejected Christ. And Jacob are the people of Israel in Europe, the white European nations. But simply because Yahweh chose history to revolve around Jacob and Esau, and he did from the time that Isaac was sacrificed on that altar, all world history has revolved around Jacob and Esau. That doesn't mean that there are not satanic entities or seed, seed of the serpent or people related to these fallen angels outside of Palestine. It's time for two seed line adherents to grow up and realize that simply because the biblical focus is on Palestine and on the people of Israel and their dispersion, that doesn't mean that there's not other devils in the world. Where the, um, in Revelation chapter 12, where the woman was to flee to safety, But the dragon was to open its mouth and send a flood after the woman. Wesley Swift and Bertrand Camperet understood that that, that that flood represented all of the aliens who at first sought to attack the nations of Europe such as the Arabs and the Mongols. And then Swift and Compare understood that the Jewish plots to flood white European nations and Christian nations with aliens because they could not defeat them militarily were part of that same flood of the serpent. And we have many people pretending to be Christian identity pastors today that try to convince us to, to accept these other races as long as they're not Jews. Oh, they're not Jews, so they're not devils. Well, even Swift and Compare understood that they were indeed part of that flood from the mouth of the serpent. And this is the crux of why my detractors hate me. And it's they who diverge from traditional two-seed line, and not I. In 2005, I wrote, in Broken Cisterns Part 2, that the non-Adamic races must have descended from the fallen angels. And I've established my grounds for that. In, 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 I think, five podcasts in the Pragmatic Genesis series and the Explaining Two Seed Line series earlier this summer. 
if the non-white races are flooding into Christian, formerly Christian lands, are a flood from the mouth of the serpent, how could they be created by Yahweh? How could they have been from Yahweh if they're the flood from the mouth of the serpent? And why do we imagine that Yahweh created other races of men outside of the Adamic race if we're not told that in Scripture? And if we see in Scripture a tree of the knowledge of good and evil exists here on earth before Adam, and if even Swift and Compray understood that the non-white races were here long before Adam, and all traditional two-seed liners have never understood that, have always understood that, I'm sorry, that the non-white races were here long before Adam, then if they are the flood from the mouth of the serpent, how is it that they do not proceed from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? How could they proceed from the garden of God? They certainly were not created in the Genesis account. So Swift and Compare would agree with me that races of men are trees, that the non-white races were here long before Adam, and that the non-white races are the flood from the mouth of the serpent, which was sent to persecute the woman. And just because Swift and Compare wouldn't take that final step to realize that the non-white races had to proceed from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, had to come from the serpent because they were not created by God. And they tried hard to squeeze them into this beast of the field paradigm, but it fails. Do we worship Swift and Compare, or do we correctly correlate our understanding according to Scripture? Because everywhere the prophets talk about the non-white races. It's in a negative sense. And everywhere Christ tells us parables and prophecies concerning all the nations which were to be gathered in the last days, there are only two groups of people. Wheat and tares, sheep and goats, good fish and bad fish, and nothing Yahweh created was bad. And this is why my adversaries and my detractors hate me for teaching this. Now, I didn't include it in my appendix, The Devil and Satan, when I wrote it in 2009, because that appendix was only to show from Scripture itself foundations for believing that there is indeed a serpent race of people seen all throughout Scripture. And there are. And that's traditional to seed line. And nobody can read my writing, and I stand by every word of this appendix. Now, five years later, five years after I wrote it, it's all scripturally accurate, and I stand by every word of it. Nobody can read this and say that Christogenia is not two seed line. It's not a two seed line ministry. It certainly is. And to me, there are only two seed lines. And one seed line 
proceeds from God's enemies, and it includes all the other races. The other seed line is a race born from God, and it only includes the white race. That's two seed lines. If you want to tell me that there are other races that God created, and they're just different from Adam, then you're not two seed line. You're three seed line, or four seed line, or five seed line. You should change your labels, not me. It's us, and it's them. It's sheep, and it's tares. It's wheat, and it's goats. It's good fish, and it's bad fish. That is two seed line. That is proper two seed line. If all nations are gathered before the Son of Man, and there are only two groups, and one goes to the left by race, all the goats, and one goes to the right by race, all the sheep, that's two seed lines. If we imagine that in the Garden of God there was only a tree of life, which is Christ and his race, and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that the entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not salvageable, that they all go to the lake of fire in the end because they were born from rebellion to God in the beginning, that's two seed line. I'm going to proceed. I'm sorry for the long digression. The enemy of Luke 10, 18 and 19, where Christ says, I beheld the adversary falling as lightning from heaven, is mentioned elsewhere in Luke chapter 1, verse 71. Christ would save us from our enemies. That's the purpose of the gospel. In Luke chapter 19, verses 14 and 27, the enemies who inhabited the kingdom that he was supposed to take. Luke chapter 20, verse 43. And I apologize, I'll have to look that one up real quick. I'm pretty certain I know which scripture refers to, but I want to be sure. And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my master, Sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's what this life is all about, demonstrating to the ch to his children that he will overcome all those who rebelled against him in due time. That's the purpose of the entire story of our race, that we should all submit to God and learn what sin is. In Acts chapter 13, verse 10, Paul encounters one of these enemies and several other places in Acts. The origin of these is explained in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Yahshua Christ foretold the time of vengeance on this enemy in Palestine in Luke chapter 21, and that they would be driven into all nations and be a curse and a reproach. The same thing Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Paul said in Romans 16.20, Writing to the Romans, he said, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. 
And the purpose of this is to show that God's enemies are here on earth. It's not Satan in heaven. That's the purpose, the, the, the major purpose of this appendix, the devil and Satan. Satan is a collective group here on earth. Thirteen years after Paul wrote that, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, writing to the Romans. Thirteen years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. That was what Christ was talking about in Luke chapter 21. I'm sorry, I'm slow. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are, that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. Daniel said that after the cutting off of the Messiah, the people of the prince would come and destroy the city. Paul's words in Romans 16.20, in reference to this same thing, demonstrate that Paul understood Satan to be that collective entity, that grouping of people who were opposed to God and Christ. and the dispersion, the diaspora of the Jews after 70 AD was the diaspora of those bad figs cursed by Yahweh, the diaspora of his enemies, which is mentioned very often in Scripture. It's a collective group. Satan is a collective group, not a spiritual boogeyman. That word diabolos, that's often translated as devil, is an adjective. It means slanderous, backbiting, a slanderer. In the Christianity New Testament, it's always rendered as the false accuser, one that appears with the article as a substantive, as a noun. The verb, diabolo, means to traduce, to slander, to calumniate, to misrepresent, to deceive by false accounts. The entire history of the Jews is filled with those actions. And they love to control the media, the print media, wherever they go so that they can conduct themselves in that manner. The language used in Scripture is perfectly descriptive of the nature of the beings that it speaks of. Now, the false accuser, the Satan, the devil, sometimes in Scripture certainly appears to be a supernatural being. But this is not necessarily so. It's not necessary that the devil in Luke chapter 4 
is a supernatural being. The language very naturally describes natural actions conducted here on the earth. People like to imagine it to be a supernatural event, but that's not necessary. Very often in scripture, the word certainly is applied to mere human beings here on earth. Ephesians 4.27 is one of the passages I cite in reference to that. Neither give place to the devil. Paul says, and ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil, neither give place to the false accuser. Let him that stole steal no more. Don't be, don't behave in a manner which gives occasion to the enemies of Christ to accuse you of anything. He's not talking about a spiritual Satan in heaven. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The accuser of our brethren, those people here on earth, who accuse us all the time. Look at the history of the Jew. And they've infiltrated every white nation and attempted to usurp and pervert that nation against whites by consistently accusing whites of, of crime or of poor behavior, of wicked behavior. And we see that in the media every day today. Whites are attacked every day in the media. That's the devil on steroids. One Timothy three six. Speaking about um, appointing ministers, Paul says that a novice or a neophyte should not be appointed, lest blinded with pride he would fall into condemnation of the devil or the false accuser. And he's talking about people. He's not talking about devils in heaven. That's ridiculous. He's talking about human temptation and human failure and how the enemies of Christ take advantage of us in those predicaments. The word demon The word demon demotes a divine power, a deity, a divinity, a spirit, a being inferior to God. Demon is an English word borrowed directly from Greek. Inferior or lesser gods are mentioned in the Old Testament. 
Exodus 23.32, 2 Kings 21.3. Sometimes those words are interpreted as angels. Demons are spirits that could vex men. And that's fine. But demons are not Satan's in heaven. In the New Testament, demons are equated with unclean spirits. Mark chapter 7, Luke chapter 4, Revelation 16, 18. Such an equation was often made by the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Qumran sect, where it is evident that demons and serpents were believed to exist on both the physical and the spiritual planes. Yet are all of that same satanic or adversarial entity. And we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls references to the spirits of Belial quite often. The word Belial in Hebrew is associated with the idea of something mixed. And is often used of people in the Old Testament. And Paul even used it in the New, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Dead Sea Scrolls mention the spirits of bastards, people of mixed racial backgrounds, very often, where they're also referred to as spirits of wickedness. In the Enoch literature, they're mentioned as spirits of wickedness. In the Songs of the Sage, which is a sectarian document in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they are mentioned as spirits of uncleanness, and it says in fragment one of 4Q510, 4Q Songs of the Sage from the Dead Sea Scrolls, all the spirits of the ravaging angels and the bastards, demons, and goes on to equate them to impure sinners. Now, the Dead Sea sect was not perfect, and the literature is sectarian rather than apocryphal or canonical. However, it does reflect first century thinking, first century Hebrew thinking outside of the official thinking of the temple in Jerusalem. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a comparison by writers of a woman pregnant with a son who in her pain gives birth to a wonderful counselor with his strength. And it compares that woman to she who is pregnant with a serpent and the breakers of the pit result in all deeds of terror. I have that citation in front of me, and I'm going to read it in part. This is from the Dead Sea Scroll known as 1QH, column 11. The H stands for Hodayot, H-O-D-A-Y-O-T. And in part it says, And a woman expectant with him, I'm sorry, I'm going to go up a little further, for children come through the breakers of death, and a woman expectant with a boy is racked by her pangs. Birth pangs, right? For through the breakers of death she gives birth to a male, and through the pangs of Sheol 
there emerges from the crucible of the pregnant woman a wonderful counselor with a strength that they're describing um, giving birth as hell, basically, because of the pain involved and the travail which the woman goes through. The woman who has a son, the pregnant woman, has a wonderful counselor with his strength, and the boy is freed from the breakers. And the woman expecting with him rush all the contractions of the racking pain at their birth. Terror seizes those expectant with them, and at his birth, all the labor pains come suddenly in the crucible of the pregnant woman. And she who is pregnant with a serpent is with a racking pain, and the breakers of the pit result in all deeds of terror. The foundations of the walls shake like a ship on the surface of the sea, and the clouds thunder with a roar. Those who live on in the dust, as well as those who sail upon the sea, are terrified by the din of the water. For them, their wise men are like the sailors on the deeps, for swallowed up is all their wisdom by the roar of the seas. So we see that the woman pregnant with a son goes through great pain, and a wonderful man appears, and that's how they envision this. But a woman pregnant with a serpent. Well, how is a woman pregnant with a serpent? The authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls also understood that people could be serpents, and that nothing good would come out of that. But it would result in deeds of terror to have a bastard child. And that's not unlike the woman in Four Maccabees who took care of the built-up rib and no destroyer of the desert or ravager of the plain injured her, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of her chaste virginity. If it had, the Dead Sea Scrolls writers would have considered that woman pregnant with a serpent. The language of Scripture is very poetic. But it's poetic language which describes things here on earth in a way that men can, that, that give it the appropriate study, can certainly understand when they compare it to the world around them. Because there is no disparity between God's word and God's creation. And those who rebel against God's creation can also be seen throughout God's word. Very often, the people that promote a Satan in heaven distinguish the Satan here on earth. Yet the Apostle John said in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, that Yahweh would come in the flesh as a man, as Isaiah tells us. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. He 
This is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now, already is it in, it is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. John was talking about embodied spirits. He was not talking about boogeymen. He was not talking about Satan in heaven. He was not talking about disembodied spirits. He had said that many antichrists had already been born into the world. Even though the, um, the King James translation doesn't get that right either. Either. I've gone through this um, appendix, and we didn't cover it in its totality tonight because I thought it, I thought it was repetitive in places from things I said earlier. I've gone through this appendix to show that in 2009, I was certainly what you could call two seed line. Even though I diverge from Swift and Compare on certain things, such as the nature of the Satan or serpent in Genesis chapter 3. I believe that that serpent represented a member of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and wasn't a devil come down from heaven like Swift thought, an angelic spirit being come down from heaven to seduce Eve, which I think is fantastic and ridiculous. Rather, it was a two-legged serpent, a human serpent, here on earth, who seduced Eve. And that is pragmatic. The origin of the other races, which I believe my opinion about, is much more accurate prophetically and when compared to the words of Christ than that of Swift or Compare. Aside from that, aside from those few major differences with what I believe and teach and what Swift and Compare believed and taught, I'm very much in agreement with what we call two C line with Swift and Compare. And I teach the same things they do because they were simply, in many respects, teaching the scripture. And that's what we should all be teaching, is the scripture. So there is nobody who can honestly claim that I do not uphold what we call two-seed line. If anybody says that, they're simply lying. They're lying through their teeth, and they're trying to discredit me before whom they think are the traditional 2C line adherents. They can't discredit me like that. They're liars. They're discrediting themselves. Am I writing proofs it again and again? And my pragmatic Genesis series should also demonstrate that thoroughly, even though I also diverge from Swift and Compare on how many atoms there were in creation, because they were certainly wrong about that. 
And that is why I presented this appendix here tonight. To answer, in part, to answer my detractors. Thank you for listening. I will be here Friday night with um, Romans chapter 15. And the series on Romans is coming to a close. So I'll have to think about what I'm doing next. Probably one of the Probably one of the minor prophets, Haggai, possibly, or, or um, Habakkuk. I, don't, I, I honestly don't remember which one is next. I think it's Haggai. That's okay. I will be here next Saturday. I will leave the, um, the title open. I think it will probably be a program called Primordial Two-Seat Line. I have to do some study for that. And if not, it may be Martin Luther until I can get primordial TC line together. German Origins is coming. It's definitely slated, and I definitely want to do it. But with it, I want to begin that series within the next several weeks. Thank you for listening. Oh, I'm sorry. One more important announcement. Tomorrow. Tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Christogenia Europe with Sven Longshanks. And I believe that the opening installment is going to be on Christian, the state of Christianity and paganism in Europe. And, and um, of course, my viewpoints and my perspectives on the Europeans are rather American. I will be here with Sven Longshanks and he is from Wales, and he will be able to balance my opinions, I'm certain. That'll be at 2 p.m. tomorrow. Please listen. Praise Yahweh, and good night.